Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. It's been quite a busy week in Canberra with two addresses to the National Press Club relevant to defence. The first was by Pat Conroy, the Minister for Defence Industry, and then later in the week, uh, Rob Nyer, the CEO and um, owner of a company bearing his name, or the family name. And um, they were contrasting narratives. Both addresses, by the way, are available on YouTube or via the National Press Club website. I managed to ask a similar question to uh, to both gentlemen, really around the $4.7 billion, the gift that Australia is giving to the United States as part of the August deal that I am totally obsessed with. But um, let's talk first of all about the defence budget, because there are contrasting narratives. Ministers say that there's an increase in funding and institutions like the Australian Strategic Policy Institute say the opposite. And a lot of anecdotal evidence from Australian industry is very much in the opposite direction. Now, the government is relying on information in the budget papers showing that there's a modest increase being spent on acquiring capabilities over the next three years, that that modest increase doesn't take into account the corrosive effect of inflation, and it also doesn't take into account underspends that occurred last financial year, and by the look of it, there's going to be another one this year. So, The best that can be said is that the government sort of rock-solid claims about this increase in defence expenditure just isn't true. You know, a strict reading of the numbers, you could be mistaken for thinking, oh, yes, I can see there's an increase. But as I say, that doesn't take into account a whole lot of real-world factors. The Australian Strategic Policy Institute, their research shows that there's a decline in three-year funding from $154 billion to $152.5 billion. Now, in a sense, that's not incompatible because ASPI is referring to overall defence expenditure, whereas the government is referring to expenditure on capability. But the problem that exists plainly is that something is going on. We've got, we've got competing interpretations of the data and at the very least, I conclude that in circumstances where the government and various commentators are banging on about how dire the threat is from China, we're not seeing anything approaching urgent, decisive action. There's certainly a lot of talk about AUKUS, but as we've just been discussing previously, AUKUS, particularly nuclear-powered submarines, that's a medium-term proposition. Uh, Patrick Conroy predictably said that the $4.7 billion being handed over to the US, by the way, he wouldn't actually say the number, but confirmed that, yes, billions of dollars would go to the US, and he just broadly said that that was in the Australian national interest. Not surprisingly, Rob Nyer gave a rather different answer when I asked what would be the effect of spending that money in Australia. And he said that it would be absolutely transformational. So 
again, that's, I think, something for everyone to think about, how, how wisely this money is being spent. Now, Rob was there to uh, launch an interesting report that I'll be going into in a lot more detail in future episodes and in an article or two, uh, called Developing Australia's Defence Industrial Base, A Time for Urgency, Optimism and Action. And he, or the group of companies involved, group of institutions involved, calling for $1 billion or at least a minimum of $500 million to be used specifically to foster growth in Australian-owned businesses, and a number of other measures such as setting up an industry advisory council to work closely with defence to figure out the best way of increasing sovereign Australian capabilities during a, a time of, um, of crisis, time of tension. Now, the chances of success of this, unfortunately, I would say, are not good. And that's because the government is not listening. They have convinced themselves that they are doing brilliantly. Now, let's see if that changes with more opinion polling. I mean, news polls showing uh, the government and the opposition neck and neck at 50-50 should have had a you know, should have had some sort of impact on government complacency. Um, if it continues, it probably will. Uh, if it was a one-off poll, sometimes that happens, then they'll just go back to the, the normal self-congratulatory uh, approach to, to defence industry policy, defence procurement policy generally. Anyway, the day after Rob Nyer spoke, there was a notification from the Defence Security Corporation Agency to Congress of a... US $2 billion sale to Australia. To be fair, it says up to $2 billion, and that's $2.96 billion Australian dollars for things associated with the nuclear-powered submarines, the second-hand Virginia-class submarines. And I'll just read briefly. You don't have to worry about the whole thing. A lot of it's boilerplate, but it says included in this are training devices, personnel training planning, non-recurring engineering services, support equipment, special tools, blah, 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 blah. Now, my guess is that this is some sort of catch-all provision that Australia has entered into with the United States because, of course, as we've said previously, nuclear-powered submarines have never been transferred before. And clearly, with these sorts of things, an upfront investment is necessary. Of course it is. For you know any complex military systems, you want... Uh, operators and maintainers to be very well prepared, to be trained so that when the things arrive, they're ready to go, that they can go into service and be supported seamlessly. And that requires years of effort before you actually take delivery of the hardware. I'm not questioning the overall logic. What I am questioning is the huge amount of money involved and some aspects of timing. Now, okay, the, the $4.7 billion, that still hasn't been explained in any sort of detail. We've now got this $3 billion extra to FMS. We add in the forced purchase of the Certus Toad Array, and I'll say more about that because I, you know, basically the Americans said, we're not interested in your stinking Australian sonar technology. You might think that, that it's good just because you're exporting stuff to Britain and France. We don't. With these, the rotational force of Virginia-class submarines scheduled to begin their deployments in 2027, if you want that to go ahead, you're going to have to buy this American sonar 
hardware stuff for surveillance purposes because we don't trust anything else. Anyway, when you add all of that together, we are now spending what I regard as a completely staggering $8 billion while there's a high level of uncertainty remaining about exactly what we will receive and when. Now, of course, Navy, Defence and the government would reject my statement that it's a high level of uncertainty, but again, they just keep on coming back only to the level of enthusiasm that the Americans and the British are showing that this will happen. As I keep on saying, I'm all in favour of enthusiasm. I don't discourage it at all. But, you know, to be, we are basically spending $8 billion on trust. Um, and that doesn't make me particularly comfortable. I'd like, you know, a little bit more certainty about all of this stuff before we before we start handing over such significant amounts of money. And I would frankly be tempted to wait until at least after the results of the next US presidential election are known, because if Donald Trump returns to the White House, most observers believe that all bets are off. Now, since we're talking submarines, in the last episode, I I hinted that, that I've got one from the time vault that I thought I'd bring up. I've been wanting to tell it for a while, and this is motivated partly by the Attorney General Mark Dreyfus signalling changes to the oppressive secrecy laws that we have in this country that hopefully will make government a bit more open and transparent. Um, Australia is regarded by the experts as being the most secretive and restricted democracy on earth, which is totally contrary to the self-image that we like to have of being relaxed and an open society, which when it comes to government information, we definitely are not. Anyway, I think those changes should go further, but at least it's a very good start. Now, this is a story about a major breach of national security that occurred in 1995 on the Collins program, the most significant breach of national security that I've ever seen. Now, in that year, the Daily Telegraph ran a huge headline, Dud Subs, Dud Subs, Failed Subs, some of you who have been around might even recall that. It was very dramatic. The, the, the newspaper, uh, the typeface was so large. It's the sort of stuff that you do when you go to war or when, you know, a British royal dies, that, that, that sort of thing. And the attached report also had further detail about trials of the first Collins submarine that were very damaging to the reputation of the whole program. It basically was stating that the subs were a total failure. And I know what you're all thinking, and that is, how could a journalist for the Daily Telegraph access the most sensitive military information? Trials data about submarines is amongst, if not the most secure, vital stuff that you want to protect. You know, it's it's in this category of the sort of information that no one ever, ever, ever wants to get out. So how did this happen, this huge breach of security? Well, I can tell you, it was supplied by a naval officer, RAN officer, from the surfer ship community who was jealous that the submarines were getting so much publicity. And so they decided to do something about it. 
And the suggestion always was that there was more than one person involved. Uh, that to me seems right because even when you're in the Navy, accessing this information is, is not easy. But I had a number of others definitely know who the main culprit was. And we know this. We know the identity of the person who set out deliberately to damage the, the project and to compromise the Collins-class submarines because this creep went journalist shopping. This particular creep spoke with several journalists, sort of dangling this story in front of them because, of course, it is a major story when you've got information of this sort of sensitivity. And they finally chose the Daily Telegraph because basically if you are going to try and wreck a project, that's a pretty damn good way of going about it. Now, the story was immediately picked up, it was amplified and repeated, and there was a huge pile-on in Australia and internationally, and I would say arguably the program has never fully recovered. There are still plenty of people around claiming that the Colin submarine uh, is a disaster. The program is not. The submarines are absolutely fine. Anyway, after this episode, three years later, I joined Celsius. Celsius owned Cockham's and we owned 49% of the Australian Submarine Corporation. And one morning, two Defence Security Branch officials turned up to interview me about this episode, to which you know, my response was, what took you three years to get here? And why does this person in uniform still possibly have a job? Because I well, then subsequently watched as they were promoted and promoted and promoted again. Now, in Sweden or the US, they would have been jailed for life. In China or Russia, they would have been marched out of their office and shot, but not here. To trying to deliberately destroy a strategically vital project and its promotions and medals all the way. I mean, I was appalled then, I'm appalled now, as were the Swedes. Now, if you really want to know how people feel about something, it's not in an office environment. It's when you're in a bar on Birger Jarlsgarten in Stockholm at 2 a.m. after way too many aquavits, and then you get to the truth. And the truth was that the Royal Swedish Navy firmly believed that this leak had been done by the Australian government because, number one, the nature of the leak itself, I mean, the information was meant to be so tightly held uh, that only the most limited number of people would have access to it. And the second part of it, they could see that there was no punishment for the culprit. So they connected the dots and they said, it's, you know, clearly the Australian government is behind this. They're trying to destroy the reputation of Sweden. And no matter how hard I tried to explain to them, now what, what possible motivation did or could Australia have for doing this? Well, they couldn't supply me with that, but they just looked at the facts as, as they knew them uh, and, and they'd come to their own conclusion. Hugely damaging. Now, obviously the ADF has many excellent people, that's beyond question. But they also have a few at the other end of the scale as well. And by the way, if anyone in defence would like some more information from me with a view to cancelling this creep's pension, you know where to reach me. 
Now, to circle back to the origins of the story, yes, there were issues with the first of class submarine noise signature, which basically happens with every submarine. There was absolutely no need to panic. The problems were being worked through carefully and methodically. You basically eliminate the dominant noise source, then you move on to the next activity. It's very much an iterative process rather than something that can be done in one big hit. But this article was so dramatic, it really made a major contribution to an atmosphere of disaster. And I repeat, all motivated out of professional jealousy because a person, persons, decided that they wanted to take the Collins program down a peg or two, and wow, they did a pretty good job of it. I mean, I really have, anyway, I can only repeat just how appalled I was by the whole thing. Uh, That was followed by the Royal Australian Navy illegally sending two propellers to the United States for testing. Actually, a federal court judge found otherwise in a complex ruling, okay, it was legal, but it further undermined trust. And then in the year 2000, Celsius, as I repeat, the owner of Cockham's, uh, who have been designing and building submarines for a 100 years and had done a wonderful job in transferring technology to Australia, were kicked out. I think I've told part of that story before. I, I can I can come back to it. For us, Cockham Celsius, it was a good deal. The book value of the shares in the Australian Submarine Corporation were about $30 million. You, you, you calculate value of companies on a, using a number of methodologies, but that was, you know, it was conservative, but that was about right. But a few of us inside the company said, listen, these people are just so desperate to get us out, they'll pay anything. So we doubled our valuation to $65 million and, and we got that without argument. But the, the company, we were even bigger winners, commercially speaking, when the Commonwealth also, they were in such a desperate rush to get us out of this thing that they took over all warranties and liabilities for the the project, probably saving us about $400 million because, frankly, they were idiots and were in such a hurry to get this deal done. Okay, I could go on a bit more about, about all of that, but there's a lot of rich material in it. I've spoken before about aspects of the Collins-class submarine. Get, getting, getting back to the test and trials program, the most significant problem by far was the US-supplied combat system. That was from Rockwell. It had terrible problems and problems that could never be resolved. We on the Cockham's side of things, uh, tried to have their contract cancelled. We were basically overruled by defence, and I can go into that story as well on another occasion, kind of told on the quiet, okay, well, you might think that you're doing the right thing by by this project. If you go ahead and cancel that contract, you will never do another dollar's worth of business in this country ever again. So, of course, we said, okay, well, fine, you're the customer. If you want to continue bleeding dollars, they had a separate contract. They said, you just and have a submarine that, that, that isn't going to be performing anywhere close to its potential. If that's your decision, hey, you go ahead. If you know more about this stuff than, than we do, then that comes your problem. Uh, okay, well, that's it for about this uh, episode. 
We're now in the run-up to Christmas. I'll record uh, one or two more and then have a little bit of a break for the festive season. Though, of course, if anything dramatic happens uh, in the meantime, I'll do another podcast summarising things. Thank you again for listening. Bye for now. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefensereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.